Amen. B. London came down the stairs into the dragon's den looking to sell 10% of her business for £85,000. There she is. Um, it quickly became clear that they were pretty much the only figures that she was absolutely sure of. Um, she started by entering the room, pausing for 30 seconds, and then saying, oh, sorry, was I meant to speak first? She then went on to explain how her hair extension business worked. The um, classic Dragon's Den voiceover man uh, simply said, a somewhat disorderly pitch from B London, from North London, and it was that point the dragons tucked in. They pounced, they came thick and fast with their questions, as you see them do very often. Um, Peter Jones asked, uh, very simply after a little time, what's your gross margin? She seemed to struggle uh, to know what that was. She said, uh, I don't know, maybe 75%? Um, in a pretty condescending tone, Tuka Suleiman said, B? Are you guessing? And he then asked her and tried to help her work out what it meant. Um, so he said, so B, tell me, if I were going to get hair extensions, which is obviously quite funny because he's bald, um, how much would it cost me? She said, £240. Well, how much um, do you buy the hair for, B? She said, £100. Take away VAT at 20% from £240 B, and what do you get? £200. And B, tell me, what is £100 out of £200? She paused for a minute, quite a long time, said 50%. That's your margin, he said. At which point she said back to him, oh, but we do do two heads of hair for one set of hair that we buy. And at that point, Peter Jones chirps up and says, see, it was 75% after all. And Tuka Suleiman rolls his eyes and says, please, she's got absolutely no idea. The painful questions go on. You can imagine that horrible moment as she comes and she's standing trying to give a defence, and it's just horrible. Well, they change tact a little bit. Peter Jones says, OK, B, tell me about you at which point it all becomes too much for her and she just bursts into tears it's so overwhelming the thought of trying to explain who she was was too much for her the onus was on her to find a way out of trouble to defend herself to the dragons in that intimidating environment i wonder if you've ever felt like b london talking about the christian faith sat around in a bar with friends and someone turns to you and says, so why exactly are you a Christian? Or maybe sat around at another family gathering and that awkward question comes to you with everyone listening, everyone turns to look at you. So why do you take church so seriously? And inevitably it feels pretty aggressive in tone. You feel like you've got to give a defence for what's going on. You've got to defend the gospel. We come to Acts chapter 22 and we get a gospel defence from Paul. Paul's on his feet addressing the angry questions. Um, we dropped into what he's saying. We're in Jerusalem and it's a scene of absolute chaos. The Jews in the city, they're really angry. 
They're convinced that what Paul's been doing by fraternising with the Gentiles, the people that weren't Jewish, and welcoming them into the synagogue, they're convinced that that was a really big issue. Have a look at verse 30 of chapter 21. The whole city was aroused, and the people came running from all directions. Seizing Paul, they dragged him from the temple, and immediately the gates were shut. See, we see this angry mob causing uproar. It says the violence was so great that Paul had to be carried off away from them. And it's at this point, Paul's being carried away, trying to find a bit of um, space, that he asks for permission to speak to the crowd. So he gets up on the steps, and that's where we come in at verse 1. Brothers and fathers, listen to my defence. And we're going to see this afternoon five short sections on the screen of Paul's gospel defence. Paul's gospel defence, what life was like, what I was like, what God did in my life, what God did in me, and what God is doing now. And we'll see as we see how Paul gives a defence of the gospel and how it's played out in his life, what we can learn as we seek to speak about the gospel and, and how we speak of it in our lives as well. So first, what life was like, verse 1 to 3. Have a look at verse 3. This is Paul talking about himself. I am a Jew, born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city. I studied under Gamaliel and was thoroughly trained in the law of our ancestors. I was just as zealous for God as any of you are today. See, what Paul's saying is he stands up and addresses this angry crowd of Jews that are convinced that he's gone bad. He's saying in every way, by birth, by location, by study, by training, by people that invested in me, by character, I had everything that you want, that you look for, that you respect, that you look up to. Here's what Paul says in the letter to the Philippians. If someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness, based on the law, faultless. I would have been standing exactly where you are, Paul said. I would have been doing exactly as you are now. He's identifying with the crowd. He's having some empathy. And so it's setting up his listeners in what he's about to say to identify with him. See, Paul is just being really authentic. He is explaining exactly what life was like. But you see, as he's real, as he's authentic, as he does it with empathy, he's helping them to see that they're just like him. He's literally speaking their language. See, as we think about giving our own defence of the gospel, as we think about talking of our own faith, we've got an opportunity to speak about what life was like, to create empathy with the people that we're talking to. Even if the people that we're talking to had different interests, pursuits, circumstances and lifestyle, we've got a real opportunity to be authentic, to talk about what life really was like. So second, what I was like, Paul talks in verse 4 to 5. Just have a look down at verse 4. 
I persecuted the followers of this way to their death, arresting both men and women and throwing them into prison, as the high priest and all the council can themselves testify. See what Paul's making clear as he talks about himself, what he was like. He was fundamentally opposed to Jesus. He was opposed to Jesus, his way, and all that they stood for. The, the words, this way, is the, the way that it was described, well, the, the, the um, language they used to describe the group that followed Jesus, the, the way. Paul, when he looked at this way, he, he didn't buy it. In fact, he despised it. He despised them. Paul's not just making a pragmatic point to the crowd to, of how he's making them, himself like them. He's not just saying, oh, there's nothing special about me. He's not just saying to the people in the crowd, I was no more inclined to trust Jesus than you are. But he's making a theological point about where he was. And it's of importance to us as we understand the gospel too. In and of ourselves, we were just like Paul, completely opposed to Jesus' way. Even if you can't remember a specific moment, even if you were really young when you first trusted in Jesus, there was a time when you were fundamentally opposed to the truth of the gospel. It might have been pride. You lived like you didn't need Jesus as your saviour. Or despair. And you felt like Jesus wouldn't forgive you, wouldn't have you. But at one time, you could not recognise that Jesus is the saviour that we so desperately need. Or you just would not accept his rescue. When it comes to the gospel, Jesus calls us to follow him, to live for him. And in and of ourselves, we cannot do that. We don't want to. We don't even try to. The Bible uses words like dead, blind, captive, hostile. Theological term is totally depraved. That's Paul describing what he was like, what we were like. If you're not a Christian here this afternoon, here's the point Paul makes. The change that happened in Paul was not Paul's work at all. So maybe you're exploring these things at the moment. Maybe you're tempted to, to see other Christians, to see what goes on and, and think, oh, maybe I just need to try harder, do a few things, be nicer, stop doing that, start doing that. But it's not the answer. Paul's saying there had to be a fundamental change. Because at the heart of the gospel is a free gift. It has nothing to do with what the Christian can do. And if you're a Christian thinking about telling your own story, here's the fundamental point. It's not about you. It's not about what you've done. It's not about what you did. Don't describe the change that happened in your life by first talking about the things that you did. Don't begin by talking about you. 
You know when you notice that person that always speaks about themselves, maybe in a work context, with friends, in a social setting. That person, they always end up telling stories that make themselves look good. And you know, of course, they're pretty partial to a bit of embellishment. It's pretty normal, isn't it? We hear that all the time, people talking themselves up. It's just normal. And yet, when you notice it, when you notice it of someone, you can't help but unhear it. It's pretty exhausting to listen to that person tell another story where they look really good. It's pretty frustrating. But actually, it's pretty sad when someone has to speak like that. Because there is a desperate need to keep self-promoting. There's a desperate need to protect your identity. Maybe we're in danger of speaking like that too. Maybe that's a real temptation for us. But you see, Paul, his story, as he talks about what happened, is not in any way self-promoting. It doesn't need to be. Because while there was nothing worth calling about Paul, Jesus called Paul to follow him. While he was fundamentally opposed to the gospel, while he was rooting out Christians only to persecute them, Jesus called him to follow him. Paul doesn't need to pretend. He knows exactly what he was like. He, he has real security that at his worst, Jesus called him. And uh, Christians have that same freedom to be honest, to be the most humble people in speaking about themselves. Because when we're honest about what we are like, the only thing that we have to boast in is that God saves sinners. You'll see in the next three headings, that's the perspective that Paul speaks about. It's what God, God did. What God did. What God is doing. So let's have a look at verse 6 to 13. What God did in my life from Paul. Have a look down at verse 6. About noon, as I came near Damascus, suddenly a bright light from heaven flashed around me. I fell to the ground and heard a voice say to me, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? I asked. I'm Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting, he replied. My companions saw the light, but they did not understand the voice of him who is speaking to me. What shall I do, Lord? I asked. Get up, the Lord said, and go into Damascus. There you'll be told all that you have been assigned to do. My companions led me by the hand into Damascus because the brilliance of the light had blinded me. Look, here as... Paul describes his encounter with the risen Lord Jesus. Do you see how he makes it so plainly obvious? There was never anything he was going to do except listen to Jesus. See verse 10, who are you, Lord? But, uh, sorry, verse 8. Verse 10, what shall I do, Lord? Verse 11, he just does what he's asked without question. Do you see in that encounter... God made it that in that instant there was nothing more important than responding to Jesus' call on his life. The grace of the Lord Jesus in choosing him became irresistible. 
And so Paul turned to follow Jesus. Everything he was opposed to, everything he stood against, everything he hated, in an instant it was changed. So maybe again, you're not a Christian this afternoon. Here's Paul's point. Where becoming a Christian is nothing to do with our hard work. It's all about responding to the irresistible invitation to follow Jesus. So maybe you say you haven't responded to that invitation. Please don't get bogged down in thinking, I'm not good enough. Or I've got to do this first. I've got to live a certain way. I've got to give a good impression. Jesus simply says, come follow me. And if you're not sure what to make of that invitation, look at him. Look at Jesus. Listen to his words. If you are a Christian, this means that by definition there there was a moment that God made his spirit, by his spirit, made Jesus' call irresistible to you. Even if you can't pinpoint a specific moment, even if you were really young, even if there, there's plenty of moments that you talk about, if you trust in Jesus today, there was a moment that God made the gospel irresistible to you. Maybe you've been in a place before where Christians have shared testimonies, talked about how they came to trust in Jesus, and you could feel it coming your way and you kind of thinking, ah, oh, I just don't have a good testimony. Maybe you've even said that at some point, it's a bit boring. And there's always that wise person in the corner that says, everyone's, every testimony is a good testimony. And you kind of like, oh, roll your eyes, I know, I know. But this is why it's true. This is why every testimony is a good testimony because the Bible says, the change that happens is miraculous. Ephesians 2 says we go from being dead to being made alive. 2 Corinthians says we go from being blind to being sighted. And so that means if you're a Christian, while you were dead, while you were blind, while you had zero inclination to respond to the call of Jesus, just like Paul, something miraculously changed. God, by his grace, made the call of King Jesus irresistible to you. So as you speak about that moment, or as you speak about how that moment changed a period of time for you, don't be embarrassed. Don't downplay it. Speak of what's irresistible about the Lord Jesus. When you speak about that, you're answering the question, why did I decide to give Jesus full control of my life? The answer to that question is a good one, an exciting one, and an answer that God will use as his people speak about him. Next, what God did in me in verse 14 to 18. You see, in that moment, as Paul was obedient to Jesus' call, in an instant... God gave Paul an all-encompassing vision that changes the rest of his life. Have a look at verse 14. God has chosen you to know his will, 
see the righteous one and hear words from his mouth. See, Paul's explaining to the crowd how one moment, as he sees Jesus, brings a real transformation. Because Paul knows God's will to save lost people by his son Jesus. He sees the righteous one. He actually recognises and responds to the person of Jesus. And he hears words from his mouth. He listens and responds to the very personal invitation from the Lord Jesus. God has put to effect a change in Paul. And it's not just a change in an instant, it's a wholehearted response to who Jesus is. Look at verse 15 and 16. You will be his witness to all people of what you have seen and heard. And now what are you waiting for? Get up, be baptised and wash your sins away, calling on his name. It's that change that affects everything in life. It shapes all that Paul is going to do. Paul's desire is to honour Jesus. Paul's calling is to speak about Jesus. You see, as Paul stands up in front of this angry mob, can you see how he's like trying to explain the hardest thing for the crowd to get their heads around? The outward sign of the inward change that's happened. He's gone from being chief persecutor to evangelist. He's gone from being enemy to friend. And his answer is that it all hinges on his personal response to the Lord Jesus. I wonder what you'd say is the biggest change that's taken place since you became a Christian. Maybe you'd say a change in your behaviour towards money, drink, sex, work. When speaking about what's changed, I wonder what your tendency is to talk about. Maybe if you're talking about alcohol, you might say, oh, when I became a Christian, I stopped getting drunk. And that might be true. But you see how it doesn't quite explain the biggest change that's happened. You could say, when I became a Christian, I had the desire to honour Jesus with everything. Including the way I drink alcohol, I wanted to control my body. So I could listen to him above everything else. So... In time, I stopped getting drunk. Do you see, the biggest change that has happened for the Christian in any area is that God has caused you to see Jesus for who he really is. Your life is ultimately not measured on your behaviours, but on Jesus' behaviour. And now, by his Spirit, you're listening to his words. Your behaviour is changing. As you do that, that's the change that that puts everything into effect, that puts every change in life into effect. How can you describe the changes that have happened as you've become a Christian, since you've become a Christian? Changes of character, attitude, behaviour. Could you describe them as a consequence of the, the great change that's happened as you've come to trust in the Lord Jesus? Can you describe the change in desire to honour Jesus with all that you are? To listen to Jesus and what he has to say to you? 
Well, finally, what is God doing now? Verse 19 and 21. Have a look at what Paul admits in verse 19. Lord, I replied, these people know that I went from one synagogue to another to imprison and beat those who believe in you. And when the blood of your martyr Stephen was shed, I stood there giving my approval and guarding the clothes of those who were killing me. Then the Lord said to me, go, I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Look, remember Paul stood up in front of the crowd talking about his exchange with the Lord Jesus. And he's giving a defence of who he is and what he's up to. Paul, he's being disarmingly honest. He's showing himself here to be pretty weak. He looks a bit pathetic as he talks about his fear of those that he spent time with, those that he went around with. But you see, he's authentic in his desire to follow Jesus. The defining characteristic of the Christian is not being strong, it's not being right, it's not being clever, eloquent. The defining characteristic of the Christian is trusting Jesus. If you think about giving your own defence of the Christian faith, think about how you might show that it's God at work in you. Showing that you are trusting in the Lord Jesus and what he's done for you. Show that you continue to be changed. Show your desire to trust in Jesus and listen to what he has to say. But be honest. Be honest about where that's really hard. Be honest about where you feel weak, where that's difficult. Look, as Paul speaks of his own faith, a defence of the gospel, do you see how he speaks of a God who is at work all along the way? He speaks not of himself, of not not in how good he is, not in what he's achieved, but a God who is at work, who's made a way that we can be saved in the Lord Jesus and who continues to help us to trust in him. But as we even think about sharing with other Christians, sharing with those that would be opposed to the gospel, would we be thankful? Would we share our thankfulness to God who's in control of all things? Let me pray. Father, we we do want to thank you so much. We want to thank you that while there was nothing lovely about us, while there was nothing worth saving about us, you, in your grace, gave us the Lord Jesus. Lord, please would you help us to trust in him above all else. And Lord, as we have opportunities to speak of our own faith, Lord, please, would you help us to speak about you and what you have done and the good news of the Lord Jesus available to all in the gospel. Amen. We're going to sing together a song that speaks of the goodness of the gospel and within that kind of framing of giving thanks to God because it's him at work all the way. So let's sing together.